0: So this morning we're continuing to talk about Abraham. We're going to be talking about the covenant-making God, and we're going to do it under three headings. The first is his ordinary methods. His second, The second is his enduring promises. And the third is his required embrace. His ordinary methods, his enduring promises, his required embrace. So let's talk about this first point. His ordinary methods. God, in this passage, one of the things that that he is insistent upon is that Sarah is going to be the one that bears the child of promise for Abraham. And you'll notice right there in that last section that Abraham fell face down and he laughed and said to himself, "Will a son be born to a man a hundred years old, and will Sarah bear a child at the age of ninety It's complete disbelief for abraham he he cannot fathom how it is that this is the way that it will be and and so he he offers again, right? We we've already been there in chapter sixteen, but he, he offers to God, if only Ishmael may live under your blessing. And, and what Abraham is saying is, why do we have to why do we have to continue going down this road, God? I'm a hundred, Sarah's ninety. Can't we just you know can't it just be Ishmael? Can't you just bless him and let him be the son of blessing let him be the one that is uh, the father of many nations coming from me and that's really what what god is what abraham is asking god but that's not god's method his method which we're calling ordinary is he is going to use abraham and sarah he's insistent upon it that is his plan and he is sticking to it he is not going to deviate from it. He is going to continue to utilize Abraham and Sarah. Now, we can't know for sure exactly why, why it is that he was so insistent, why he was going to go this route, but, but I have a, I have a suspicion because God does it, uh, He does it a lot in scripture actually. Um, Ralph Davis, one of my professors at RTS, calls this vintage Yahweh, okay? I mean, this is just the way God does things. But listen to the way the Apostle Paul talks about the way God acts in 1 Corinthians. He says, but God chose the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. He chose the weak things of the world to shame the strong. God chose the lowly things of this world and the despised things and the things that are not to nullify the things that are so that no one may boast before him. You see, the way that God normally goes about things is he, he, he uses methods that completely obliterate what we think is going to be uh, the right way or the, the best way or the, uh, the way that is going to um, magnify him somehow. And so in this instance, he's choosing to use an old Abraham and an old Sarah in order to bring about his promises. You know, right alongside of this is the fact that we are called in life to, to lots of what you may say would just be mundane living. This is right, this goes right along with this idea that God is just going to, He's he set in motion this plan to use Abraham and Sarah, and He is going to do it even though they're old, and it's, it's just His method. And right alongside that is this idea that you and I live in this world under God's covenant blessing. But so much of our lives is just ordinary living. You see this in this passage, because when you come out of the last chapter, the end of chapter 16, beginning of chapter 17, we get this little um, we we get this word in verse one when Abram was ninety nine years old. 10, 12, 13 years have passed between the end of 16 and the beginning of 17. A number of years have just gone by. The blink of an eye. You ask yourself, what happened in that space? What, what transpired in that space? One author says, most of it was just living life. This author said, most of the time was spent over things like getting goat's milk for morning cereal, doing vet work, brushing teeth, getting over the flu, settling disputes about water rights. It was just normal, everyday kind of stuff. And you know what? Most of your life, most of my life, is going to be lived in the ordinary. Some of you were raised in the the, um, Catholic Church not the only ones. There's a church calendar out there. We don't, we don't really follow the church calendar, strictly speaking, here. Um, we, we do kind of loosely, but there's a church calendar. And if you go look at the church calendar, one of the things about it is, and some of you will remember this, um, there are sections on the calendar that it's called ordinary time. Y'all remember that? Ordinary time as opposed to the holy days. We're Presbyterians. We don't do holy days, okay? Um, but but they had these these sections that were called ordinary time. Well, here here it is. Most of your life and my life could be considered ordinary time. We just live, and that's okay. It's the way God designed us. Most of our time is spent, right, waking up, brushing our teeth, brushing our hair, doing the laundry, making our beds, vacuuming the floors. In our house, it still has to do with some diapers, and it has to do with high chairs, and it has to do with filling the dishwasher and washing the dishes and watering the yard and cutting the yard and doing the ordinary stuff of life. But here's the the key. You and I get to do the ordinary stuff of life before a covenant God who loves us and has called us to do the ordinary things before his face. Exactly the way Abraham and Sarah were living their lives for those 13 years or so. Ordinary, everyday stuff. Just living life. When I was a kid, I went to church camp. Anybody ever been to church camp? Okay? Do you remember coming back from church camp? I got saved like 3 or 4 times usually at church camp. Okay? So coming back was a big high for me and I couldn't wait till I could go back to church camp again. I know guys, I know I know a few pastors, okay? I, I just shame on them. But they run from conference to conference to conference, almost like they're looking to live that continued high, right? They want to stay on the mountain. They want to stay on the mountain as long as they can, because there they feel like there's something really special going on. It's completely unrealistic. God has called us to live, to enjoy it, to live life under the sun right? In the sun. Under the S-U-N. Did I spell it right? In the S-O-N. Are you with me? And that's a challenge for us because somehow we feel like there needs to be something extra special happening in life. There needs to be some special connection. Listen, your special connection is this. Jesus Christ the son of God lived and died and you have been made right with the father he's accepted you as a son into his presence each and every day you can wake up you can pray you can pick up your bible and you can read the word of you don't need anything else 1 Peter chapter 1 verse 3 says we have everything that we need for life and godliness you have no, there is nothing left that is going to give you any more And you already have, there's more to learn, there's more to grow, more growth and grace that is going to happen in your life, Lord willing. But you don't need any other tools in order for that that to happen. You have them all already. Utilize them. Utilize them in your relationships, in your life. Prayer, ministry of the Word, fellowship of the saints. You know, He's given us a simple supper... And the simple um, grace of baptism and worship. And he says, Live here and do it well. Those are his ordinary methods for you and I. Are you okay with that? It's hard. It's hard to live the humdrum of the Christian life, it's challenging. That's why you read passages, there, there are numbers of passages, right? All the way through the, the book of Hebrews, all of these passages. Run the race, run it with endurance, uh, with so great a cloud of witnesses around you. All of these things, because the humdrum of life will wear you down. Is you are looking, you need so you have some connection. And here's, here's the reality, is He's given you the means of grace already in your worship, in the fellowship of the saints, in the word, and in prayer. and Utilize those, and that will be good for your heart. Here's the second thing I want you to see, his enduring promises. Now, as you look at this passage, you'll see that there, there are a number of things going on, and you, 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 there's lots of back and forth. Boil it down. Two areas where we would kind of want to drill down in two aspects of of, of the promise um, that you see here, and here is the first, picking up in verse seven here 's what he says, "I will establish my covenant as an everlasting covenant between me and you and your descendants after you for the generations to come to be your God." and the God of your descendants. The whole land of Canaan, where you now reside as a foreigner, I will give as an everlasting possession to you, you and your descendants after you, and I will be their God. Two main parts of the promise in this passage. One, that, that God is promising, what He's saying to Abraham is, Abraham, I will be your God. And... I will be the God of your descendants that follow you. What does that even mean? Have you ever really thought about that? We just read that like, oh, okay. Like, oh, well, we deserve it. You know? I mean, he created us. Of course he'll be our God. He is saying something really amazing to Abraham. Here's what he's saying. Abraham, I will be your God. I mean, if you believe that God exists, if you believe that He created this world, if you believe He created the vast expanse of the universe, if you believe He created you, breathed life into you, gave you a mind and a soul that will last forever, that God is saying, I am going to have a personal relationship with you. That's phenomenal. That's unheard of. There's no other religion in the world that has a God who's willing to enter into time and space with us and to walk with us and to minister to us and to promise to be our God. And yet that's what, that is what is happening as God comes and he meets with Abraham. It's absolutely, really mind-boggling. Because here's what God is saying. And one author noted that there's one, one, one place you can see this sort of being for someone is in the marriage vows. It's a very pale comparison, but you get the idea. Because in the marriage vows, there's that part where you exchange vows and you say, I promise in sickness and in health and in, you know, rich, when we're rich, whatever, you know. Those vows, remember those? I might ought to re- refresh myself. But in those vows... We're we're looking at the person, we're saying, it doesn't matter what happens, we're going to get old together, we'll be poor, we'll be rich, we'll be sick, we'll be healthy, whatever it is, you're saying to that person, I will be for you, right? Only in this instance, God isn't sitting there going, well, now what are you going to do for me, Abraham? How will you be for me? He's merely proclaiming to Abraham, I'll pursue you, I am for you, Abraham, and really, right, as Abraham is a covenant keeper, and that doesn't mean he's perfect, by the way, that means he is living this, what we would, what I would just call the normal Christian life. Abraham's going to sin, he repents, he trusts. He sins, he repents, he trusts. He continues to come back to the grace of God, relying upon it, right? And so as he lives that life, God is saying, it doesn't make any difference what happens, He's already screwed this up, and here he is in chapter 17 announcing his love for him. That's quite remarkable, really. And so what God is saying is, Abraham, my holiness, my goodness, my trust, my grace, my mercy, my judgment, my unchangeableness, all of that is for you. I am for you as your God. So everything that I am is for you. As your God. Let me ask you. Have you ever been for someone who couldn't return the favor to you? Or something? If you have, then you know just a smidgen of really what's going on here. When Jody and I first got married, we, um, when we, when we moved out of campus housing and got our first little, little house, we went straight to the pound to get cats. And I'll never forget we went in and um and of course, you know, Jody went in the big fluffy cat, you know, really cute. So she got this really cute cat. Now some of you will some of you will know instantly this reference. She named that cat Sully. Does that ring a bell? Real handsome guy from Dr. Quinn Medicine Woman? Okay. <laughs> She is really embarrassed. (laughs) And then as I was looking for my cat, I I started looking and I found the cat that was the runt in the back who uh, wasn't getting nourished. And I picked that little kitty. And I was for him, right? It's kind of silly, but you get the idea. We have nothing to offer God. And God is for us. There are lots of ways for you to be for others. To reflect that, right? There's a quality there that God's children can reflect to the world. God is very serious about this, as a matter of fact. Right, Because one of the things that Israel didn't do is they didn't reflect that for those who were less capable. Orphans and widows primarily. God is for the orphan and the widow. Just read your Bible. It's there. It's all over the place. And when Israel wasn't for them, he called them on it. Are you for them? Are you for those in your life who are at the fringes of society, who are struggling? God's for them, right? Exactly the way he was for you, because you were at the fringes. Remember the remember, he he um if you go back to, to Deuteronomy, um there's there's a passage there where Moses Moses' Um, reminding Israel about God's love. And he, he says this to them. He says, The Lord didn't set his affection on you and choose you because you were more numerous than other peoples, for you were the fewest of all peoples. But it was because the Lord loved you. Right? Why? Who knows? But it was because the Lord loved you and he kept the oath he swore to your ancestors and brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the land of slavery. He doesn't give them a reason. He just says, essentially, he loved you because he loved you and he was going to keep the oath he made to Abraham. Here's the second thing. In verse 8, God tells Abraham, the whole land of Canaan, where you now reside as a foreigner, I will give to you as an everlasting possession to you and your descendants after you. Now, When you read that, there's something deep down in that. There's a real promise in there that you don't see at first. This promise contains perhaps the greatest promise that you and I have as fallen creatures. And that is this. God has promised that there will be a resurrection from the dead. So where is that in that promise? Verse 8. The land of Canaan, where you now reside as a foreigner, I will give as an everlasting possession to you and your descendants after you. Well, here's where that is. Abraham has not owned and will only own a grave plot in the land of Canaan in his lifetime. That is all Abraham will take possession of in the land of Canaan. But God is promising to Abraham that he will possess that land. So let me ask, how is Abraham going to possess a land that he doesn't now possess and will not possess in this lifetime? Why, he's going to have to possess it in the future, right? And it's right there in the passage because he tells him it's an everlasting possession. Exactly the way he just said in the previous verse, in verse 7, he said, I will be your God. And and that is an everlasting promise that I am making to you. It's an eternal promise. It's a promise that goes on to the future. And so if Abraham is going to possess that land, he's going to have to possess it after he dies, which means he's going to have to live again. And of course... Hebrews 11 kind of bears that out, doesn't it? Hebrews 11, as Marian read it, kind of gave that to us. Listen to it again. Hebrews 11, verse 13. All these people—Abraham, Moses—all the people that were—they—they they were still living by faith when they died. They didn't receive the things that were promised. They only saw them. They welcomed them from a distance, admitting that they were foreigners and strangers on earth. People who say such things know that they are looking for a country of their own. If they had been thinking of the country they had left, they would have had the opportunity to return. Instead, they were longing for a better country. And here it is. They were longing for a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, as He has prepared a city for them. You and I, along with Abraham, will one day possess the land, the new heavens and the new earth, essentially, and a city in which the Savior dwells. It's the promise of Scripture. It's the promise bound up in the promise that it's right here given to Abraham. Here's the third, the third point this morning is I want you to see his required embrace. As God has announced this covenant to Abraham, he he then tells Abraham that he must respond. He must embrace the covenant that God has made, and and he um, and, and as he does that, what he will do is he will utilize the sign of circumcision. Now, this is a weird, this is sort of a strange passage. Circumcision involved, just like the. Previous giving of the covenant to Abraham, reflect back on that, okay? Um, in chapter 15, where the carcass of the animal was cut, and there was a shedding of blood, and the, and the animal was separated. Do you all remember that? Okay. Well, just like that, in this circumcision, there's a shedding of blood. And there's the symbolic act of cutting away. Only this time, it's in the male body or that of the infant son. And that pointed both to blessing and to curse. In blessing, it was a sign of the one, uh, well, in, in the cursing part, okay, it was a sign that the one who was in covenant unity with God, the one who was a part of the covenant community, if that individual didn't keep covenant, that cycle of life, if he didn't return to God, if he didn't come back, if he, if he didn't continue to um, affirm his faith and trust in God, then he would be cut off from the covenant community. So remember a couple of weeks ago we said they would divide those animals and they would pass through them together. That was the deal-making process. And if one party didn't keep it, essentially they were saying, let me be, let me be cut up, let me be cut off. Um, it's the cutting of the deal. And so in this passage, that sign is now placed in their body. And so it was an ever-present reminder to them that if they didn't keep covenant with God, they could reasonably expect that God would cut them out of the covenant community. But then there was a blessing associated. There's a, a reminder because, remember, it's a sign. It is a sign, and as a sign, it pointed to the fact that that they were God, that they belonged to Him, and that there would be a shedding of blood that would be much greater than this small amount of blood that would one day be shed in order for them to be integrated fully into God's people. And so he changes their name because he's moving them from being outside to inside. This relationship has changed, and so he now becomes Abraham, and she becomes Sarah, and that was significant because they were God's people, and it reflected the promise. Remember, he was he was uh, Daddy, and now he's Big Daddy. Hey, okay? now he's the dad of the nation; he's the father of the nations, and so that was the sign. Today, obviously, the sign is baptism. Because we're still covenant members. We're still in this covenant relationship with God. And so in baptism, exactly the way it was in circumcision, there is still both a blessing and a curse in view. And you scratch your head and you go, a blessing and a curse in baptism? Yes. You see, for the one baptized who remains in this covenant relationship with God, trusting God by faith, then what does the sign point towards? It points towards the washing away of sin. It points towards rebirth. But for the covenant breaker, for the one who rejects God and leaves the faith, then baptism is also becomes a sign that has a curse associated with it. And you kind of pick up on this in 1 Corinthians chapter 10. Here's what the Apostle Paul says in those first two or three verses. He says, I don't want you to be ignorant of the fact, brothers and sisters, that our ancestors were all under the cloud and that they all passed to the sea. Now, Paul is talking about the Exodus. He's talking about the Israelites. He said, I want you to be ignorant of the fact that our forefathers, our brothers and sisters, they were under the cloud, that is the Pillar of cloud and the pillar of fire, and that they all passed through the sea, okay? And they were all baptized into Moses and into the cloud. I mean, this is kind of technical. but here's the idea. He is equating that passing through the sea as a baptismal event for them, for the, the children of the exodus. And so they passed through the waters. But then those very same waters became the waters that drowned the Egyptians. And so the waters of baptism have for us, right, um, that picture, those pictured elements, if you will. The washing away, the rebirth, or the crushing aspect that water itself can carry with it. And so that day, God came to Abraham and He said, "Abraham, here's the sign of the covenant that I'm making." And Abraham got busy. It says in the passage that very day he instituted circumcision. Now, remember, there was a bunch of guys in his home, in his family. They had three or four hundred at least, so uh, they began in earnest. And he got busy that day. Here's the thing I thought about as I was thinking about this. What a bloody day in Abraham's house. But remember, circumcision is a sign, a blood ritual. It points also to the need for the shedding of blood, for that covenant to be fully realized. And so the sign pointed them forward, unbeknownst to them, it pointed them forward all the way to Jesus, the Son of God who would come down, who would shed his own blood once for all the righteous for the unrighteous. And think about it. When Jesus came, the sign changed. He instituted the sign of baptism after the shedding of blood. And so if you doubt that the sign was this significant and that pointed towards all this, just understand, circumcision was the sign until the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. And upon his resurrection, when he, he gave a new sign, no longer a blood sign, now a sign pointing to the washing away of sin. And so that sign reigned for all those years, pointing them towards Jesus, reminding them that one was coming that would be for them and would end the need for the shedding of blood. All right, so we're done. But before we finish, here's the takeaway. If you've got your Bibles, you can turn to the passage in Hebrews. It's Hebrews chapter 12, 1. Lots of good reminders, lots of good things in this passage. But but I want you to leave really encouraged and thinking about this. Because after chapter eleven and Marion read that and we've referred to it this morning, all of the encouragements, all of the talk, and then there's the last section that we talked about, right? These were all commended for their faith, yet none of them received what had been promised. God had planned something better for us, so that only together with us would they be made perfect. And then he says this. Don't let the chapter divisions get you. Because coming right out of that, chapter 12, verse 1, Therefore, okay? So we're reflecting on chapter 11. We're reflecting upon this eternal home that is ours that God has given to us. Therefore, knowing that, knowing they lived by faith, knowing that they didn't inherit the land, knowing that God has something good for us and for them together, therefore, since we're surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, what? Let us throw off everything that hinders us. Here's what, here's what the writer of Hebrews does. He takes Abraham's life and all these other men of faith, but he takes them and he says, look at them. They ran that race. They never even got what it was that was promised to them. They're still waiting. And they're going to get it, and you're going to get it, all at the appointed time. So keep running the race. Don't give up. Don't give in. Run the race with endurance. And how do you do it? You fix your eyes on Jesus. Because He is the author and perfecter of your faith. Let's pray. Father, thank You for Your goodness to us this morning. It's easy for us in the mundaneness of life, and the everyday, um, ordinary nature of living, to grow weary. But we pray this morning that you will take us, take hold of us, that you'll push us and you will encourage us, that you will allow us to fix our eyes on Jesus as we run the race that's marked out before us. And we thank you for Abraham who set this example that we would follow and that we would run hard knowing that both he um, and we will join together in the inheritance that awaits us. We pray it all in Jesus' name. Amen.